Welcome to the Rise Network Podcast Show, a podcast dedicated to help you reach your dream lifestyle through investing in real estate. We're going to be sitting down with new, intermediate, and experienced investors to talk all about real estate and how it has changed their lives. If you're looking to scale your portfolio or even just get into real estate investing, you're in the right place. Make sure to tune in. What's going on, everyone? You are listening to the Rise Real Estate Investing Podcast with your host, Mayu Thaba and Austin. What's going on, buddy? Yay, Austin, yay. Don't start <laughs> taking, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't take away my last name just because I'm second now. What have you been up to? Uh, going pretty heavy in the mailer side of things and advertising. When I say advertising, other methods that I don't want to disclose. We are looking at ramping it up this month pretty hardcore. We have some bird dogs that we've onboarded and we're going to put out like a testimonial video next week to onboard some more bird dogs. But how I look at it is, is like this. I mean, the market has moved in so many micro cycles. Like when you notice something that hasn't appeared in the headlines or the data just yet, you want to sort of maximize it before, you know, be pulled off if the market does end up pulling off, which I suspect it eventually will. But I expect the next couple of months to be doing fairly well. So we're ramping things up full speed on the wholesaling side of things. What's the budget? <laughs> Is that too um, much? <laughs> yeah, I mean, no, I mean, in the first, in the, well, I'm not going to give the budget, but in the first, <laughs> like next week, we're probably throwing out 30,000 flyers with flyers alone. That's like just one sort of mailing stream. We'll see how that goes. But are, are you guys like, uh, I don't even know if it's like, you don't have that risk, okay? but um, yeah, is it, is a target still the secondary tertiary markets like value add, like cash flow plays, or is it bigger cities like Kitchener, Toronto, London? Like, have you noticed like buyer sentiment, like change in terms of market that they want? So here's the thing. I find like flipper sentiment has changed. And from a lot of people in our buyers list, they're willing to go anywhere the deal is especially fixing flippers. And that's likewise with you and I, if there's a smoking hot deal, we're not opposed to it. Of course, if it's in sort of a rural area, maybe not as much. We're targeting, maybe not Toronto as much, but we are targeting some like decent sized city, right? Like our minimum cutoff is 50,000 population, ideally beyond. Definitely not Timmins and areas like that. Like as far north as we'll go is Sudbury. We moved Thunder Bay deals, but haven't to find a buyer there is such a pain in the ass, no matter how good the deal is. And we find yeah. that Sudbury is sort of the threshold of where investors are comfortable going. Um, but we're mailing in southwestern Ontario, some in northern Ontario. We're doing other strategies in eastern Ontario. We'll see how that goes. But again, strike while the iron's hot, right? So that's, that's how I see it. Interesting. Interesting thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What's going on on your end of things? Um, Honestly, not much. I can't even remember what we talked about last time we were on, but I, let's see. The, the mortgage world is pretty much, uh, it's not, okay. Actually, it's doing pretty decent for the month of January, which I think is a reflection yeah. of buyer sentiment starting to change as well, right? Wait, like, sorry, purchase, purchase refis or what, what are you talking about by that? So this month was one, two, three, um, probably about like 50% purchases and 50% wow. renewals. Right. Versus That's the a pretty before. good mix, dude. <laughs> yeah. The month before yeah. was 20% purchases. Yeah. yeah. Right. So, you know, the purchases is one thing. I, I think the other side of it is the number of pre-approvals that I'm taking for, right? 
that's been increasing quite a bit. Uh, so that will likely be a three month kind of conversion. So we're probably starting to see buyer sentiment start to pick up in the next three to four months is what I'm thinking. And it's interesting though, cause I was looking for deals for myself online. I'd say the inventory is pretty shit right now. And I was talking to a realtor earlier today as well. And they're just like, look, if you price competitively today, you will move your property, right? As a result of just like a lack of like, there's not too many options. A lot of, a lot of options are overpriced. They're just kind of sitting there. They're fine to sit there, right? So I don't know, but we'll, we'll kind of see what happens, but that's kind of my boots on the ground information that, that we're seeing. I actually, I, I published something on, on like, since we're on this topic, I published something on LinkedIn today. I'll, I'll give a quick summary. Twitter, I think you and I sort of go aside from phone calls with, you know, specific realtors and boots on the ground people. Twitter is, we mentioned it before, but it's a pretty good sentiment gauge, right? You have a lot of top performing realtors on there just giving their sort of two cents. Yes, there might be biases, but like sort of uh, the takeaway I got looking at a couple of big Twitter accounts is, is that there's been a pretty decent uptick in showings. They were showing a chart between December, well, I guess the last six months and January sort of had an uptick. But what's more surprising is, is that while showings increased decently, the offers in January have increased significantly, which means that like the people who are going are more active, right? They're like taking action. Yeah. They're more serious about actually making an offer versus in December, they might just be like kind of tire kicking it a little bit, right? It's interesting though, because it puts you in a little bit of like, a, I feel like people are starting to FOMO on they're FOMOing on FOMO. They're just kind of like, FOMOing, yeah. Like, yeah. What if I missed out on the opportunity to like not miss out on the opportunity? It's, it's just, I don't even know how to explain it. That, that's, that, that's a great way. No, that's a great way to put it. What if I missed out on the opportunity of a potential opportunity yeah. that's coming up? Yeah. Yeah. No. Uh, there's another tweet I saw. Uh, a pretty big realtor had 30 showings for an East End property they listed in the first two days. 30 showings booked, not 30 show. 30 showings booked in the first two or three days. Mm-hmm. Insane. Um, a property in Whitby had 22 offers this week, 135K over list price, and it sold 50K, 45 or 50K above a better, a better comparable property in December. So, I mean, we've already seen 45K with that particular property, that's yeah. 45K over price decrease. You could argue, right? And then yeah. the last thing I meant, I mean, things that we chatted about, right? Like you you talked about it in our previous preambles, like fixed rates have been declining. It, it looked like there's going to be a floor because the bond yields went up a little bit. But I mean, fixed rates are declining. People are expecting rate cuts. Fucking you let in 1.2 million people into the country. What do you expect to happen, right? And then what you were saying, FOMO, FOMO. It'd be interesting though. Do you think that this is going to last throughout the year or how do you... You know, one thing, one thing I was telling a client, I'm like, look, if you really want to get the best of both worlds, there's a little bit of risk on this strategy, but you go shopping in February and you put a four month close on it, right? And I'm like, maybe by the time it closes, the rates would have come down. Because the reality is right now, if rates do come down, then we're getting a higher rate today. So everyone's kind of like, oh, I'll wait till the rates lower, right? And then the problem then is if the rates go lower, the prices might go up. So if you want the best of both worlds, you can potentially do this. And then I, I quickly like cautioned him. I was like, dude, but like- That's I, not financial advice. <laughs> that the people that got burned <laughs> in 2022 were the people that bought in March and April and had to close yeah. like June, July. June, so like, July. Yeah. Yeah. With the grain of salt, like I'm just like shooting the shit here, right? But, and it could work, but don't, don't come after me if it doesn't, right? But, no, no. And you're literally saying it more so for like, it would be funny if this happens and it could yeah, happen, yeah. but like I would never bet on this to happen with my own cash. Yeah, yeah. Right. yeah like, I mean, no, I you. Middle of COVID when we were buying shit and we never fucking anticipated by the time like it actually closed. Like oh, oh, dude, yeah. 
remember we were closing on three properties and uh yeah right at the beginning of COVID, and we're like fuck this is good. <laughs> you got to wait hours at the fucking bank that's pgsd bro oh actually one more thing i want to i want to bring up i don't know did you see that report on national bank about the uh with the population trap yeah i yeah. saw play drive that shit on linkedin <laughs> i did i did i just moved it over <laughs> Yo, don't don't be revealing my strategy. Yeah. This is why I don't no, tell you what to do for. I I didn't read it, so I give you like the fast course on it. Like what happened? No, it literally, literally, it's such a short report. It's like what I said was probably eighty percent of what the report said. I didn't really change too much. But in a nutshell, basically, a population trap is when the population increases, but your resources in the economy are being used to oh. fund the population growth. So your standard of living actually doesn't change, right? They're talking about the things that we've said again before, the GDP per capita is declining, staying relatively flat while the U.S. is increasing, housing shortage, less housing starts, our infrastructure is being stretched thin. We're letting in all of these people, which is like actually not beneficial to our economy. It's actually destroying our economy. And usually we see this in third world countries, not really modern economies. That's general synopsis. Yeah. So, so it's because the, the funds are going towards like social benefits, right? Like welfare and, right. like, and that until like the immigrant population, immigration population eventually gets good jobs and then starts to contribute. Right. That's the issue, right? Like immigration is good for long-term GDP, but too much immigration, like their argument is, is that our infrastructure will never be able to keep up because yeah. that's the issue, right? Our standard of living is actually decreasing everything that we're making all our resources are being used to barely support what we have. So our standard of living is decreasing. But yeah, no, you're right. We're not saying like fucking, you know, don't let any immigrants in. But dude, 1.2 million is bonkers. Insane. Yeah, yeah you follow the US, U.S. elections? Are we going to talk about that? We don't really I don't. I don't know. But uh, give me your thoughts. I like I heard something about like if Trump gets elected and they do more printing of money, fucking inflation might shoot up. I don't know, dude. I've heard like a bunch of random shit. I was a big, big Ramaswamy fan. And then the guy just bowed out of the elections after Iowa. And I was kind of bummed out about that for like a solid day or two. Thought we could have another fellow brown man in, in, in a high political <laughs> position. But I mean, um, uh, yeah, I, okay. Like if Trump, I mean, it seems like Trump is basically going to take the Republican Party. If he takes the Republican Party, then he will probably beat out, if it's Biden, he'll probably beat out Biden. And so we're probably looking at a, a Trump presidential election, basically. If that happens, he's a big fan, obviously, on the stock market, keeping borrowing costs down. And even when he was in, in power in 2019, it was a, lo- a lot of him pressuring the Fed uh, to keep rates down, to do cuts and stuff like that. Right. But we'll see. We'll see. I think it's uh, the more interesting thing is right now, like we're in like a pretty geopolitical like turmoil, like shit is fucked. Right. Like there's so many. Yeah. Like, I, wanna, I saw someone posted something about like all the different like micro wars, like Pakistan, not a war, but like Pakistan had attacked Iran and Iran had attacked Pakistan. It's just like one incident that could like, you know, blow up unnecessarily. Right. So it's just going to be interesting to see. Oh, man, it's a conspiracy theory. No, I'm joking. No, 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 no. I get you. I get you. No, no, no. Yeah, no, I I get it. Uh, People are going to call it conspiracy theory, you know? You know, we should stop rambling this jump into the podcast episode. We have a much anticipated episode with Mr. Tom Story, a prominent real estate Toronto realtor, huge on social media. You probably see him all over on YouTube and on the local news. He's been featured in so many different media outlets like CTV, Global News, CP24, on and on and on. He has his own podcast as well. He's a real estate investor. He helps first-time home buyers and other real estate investors grow their portfolio in the Toronto market. 
We get into so many interesting topics. Keep in mind, we filmed this in December of 2023. Some of the predictions that you see Tom mention may have already panned out today. So again, just keep that in mind. We talk about the current real estate market as of December 2023, which is similar to, to the market today. Future opportunities, how to be able to sell properties in today's market, specifically with condos, right? We get deep into the condos because we know that that market is hurting quite a bit. The opportunities uh, in the Toronto real estate market, including in, in investing in condos as well, market trends, social media, and how to leverage that for business growth. So if you're a realtor, mortgage agent, real estate professional that relies on commission sales, that's going to be key for you. You don't want to miss out on today's episode. We get into so many different nuts and bolts. And Tom, again, as you probably know, a wealth of information. Before we jump into it, make sure to like, subscribe, share this with a friend. Um, it helps keep this podcast going. And without further ado, let's jump on in the podcast. Hello, everyone. We are joined with our very special guest, Mr. Tom Story. Very excited for this episode. Tom, how is everything going? Things are good. Uh, kind of getting in the mindset to wrap up the year. But uh, yeah, man, thanks for having me here. For anyone that doesn't know you, Tom, uh, you, you've got quite the personality, quite the presence online already, I'm sure. But for anyone that might not know you, why don't you give everyone kind of a quick background on yourself, who you are, uh, what you do for a living, and then and everything beyond you. Yeah, for sure. So more recently, I'm a dad. My little guy just turned two. So that kind of has gone to the top of the list at how I describe who I am. Uh, I'm, I'm active in real estate in terms of, I, I run a team in downtown Toronto. We're very kind of active in the condo market. We help a lot of people buy their first place and then trade up to a house when the time makes sense. And a lot of like, we've been doing this almost a decade now. So watching everybody kind of in the last three years, sell the condo and then jump up to like the, they think it's their forever home, but it's really their five-year home until they have the second kid and they're going to do it again. So that's when our, what our business looks like. I've been investing in real estate myself since I was 25. So I've got four properties now kind of spread out and, and that's done very well for me. So uh, there's that. And then there's the like online education side of things where we run a YouTube channel. We have our own podcast where we just talk real estate and numbers and what's going on. And, you know, we try to be obviously like, you know, fun for people to watch, but the core responsibility from my perspective on that kind of stuff is like educate people of what's actually going on because there's just so much noise and most people don't read past the headlines. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. And we, we talked about this in advance, but like we, we, we obviously see everything you're doing and there's, I think two really important, well, we're going to break this episode down basically into two parts. Right. But the first part just being, if we talk about Toronto today, um, I'd be just curious to hear kind of your, and anyone can go on your YouTube and then watch all the kind of, um, the headlines and everything that you kind of, out there as well. But where do you see the biggest opportunity? What do you see happening in today's market in Toronto? Just kind of give us some boots on the ground details here. The way that I look at this is like, there's obviously like buying for yourself and where you're going to live in the neighborhoods that you're interested in. And then there's like, okay, well, if I'm going to buy an investment property or look at that side of investing in real estate, where do I go? And there's the obvious places that you can look at and go, okay, it's close to transit. It's always going to rent really well. And we talk about this thing called the wow factor. And it seems pretty obvious when you explain it, but people don't really think about it before they start investing. And it's like, you know, in good markets or bad markets, because I've seen both of them in the last 10 years, especially right now, how like, you know, to sell, you have to be priced really, really well and you have to have a wow factor. So I would then take that to the investment side as well. So what is a wow factor? Let's say you're investing in a condo. Well, it's a condo with an amazing view. 
right? Other units don't have that. You have that. So yours will be in more demand for resale value in the future or just to rent it out. Yeah. Or it could just be a two bedroom where it's not a really crappy layout where they're both interior bedrooms where it's like split down the middle. Both are on separate. Like these are obvious things or even having a small unit with a parking space because that's not as common these days. Right. Yeah. And what I've noticed is that selling in condo markets or helping people rent out properties in markets that are really hot, everything moves, everything moves and everything happens. But in the markets that are more buyer focused, or there's just so many more options out there, the stuff that is leasing out the quickest and the stuff that is selling the quickest has some type of wow factor. And what we've learned over a period of time is that if you don't have a wow factor, if you have a cookie cutter, there's 1400 of these also on the market right now, your wow factor has to be your price, right? So that's kind of how we think about it on like a core level of like, okay, I want to buy something that regardless of market conditions, there will be some level of demand for that asset. So that's where I'd start. And then from there, I would go like, okay, well, where are the pockets or opportunities where you look at in the city right now that you think have growth in the next 10 to 15 years? Of course, this is subjective. Nobody knows for sure exactly how this is going to go. But if we kind of backtrack and go, okay, well, what are the markets today that are booming that 15 years ago, nobody wanted to live in? And every single young couple I talk to that sells their condo go, we want to sell our condo and move to Leslieville. I'm like, cool, get in line. Like everybody wants to do that. Well, how did that neighborhood build up so fast? And if you look at the core of the city, it's simply, well, because it's, it's really close to downtown, right? Yeah. It's close to downtown. It's close to everything. And then you can go on to the West end and go a little bit more North and look at the junction area. 15 years ago, that wasn't on the top of people's list, but those areas have built up. So now the question is, well, what's the Leslieville? What's the junction next? <laughs> right? Like what's, what's that next area? And for me, so I live in the beaches now and Victoria Park being kind of like that between Scarborough and, and Toronto. And I look at Kingston Road and I go like, okay, I, there's so much development going on there right now in the future, like the next five years, things aren't really going to change much. But if I was investing money into the future, I'd be looking at those areas because it's still close to everything out. And as we build out and as the Ontario line will be built at some point in our, maybe hopefully we're all still alive when the Ontario line is actually completed. But, you know, what are the areas that you look at right now? They're like, okay, it's not at the top of people's list, but I want to get in now where the prices are lower and I'm going to hold this thing forever. So that would be the mindset like long-term. So sorry, I want to dig a little bit deeper into that. So, so beaches, I guess like upper beaches, lower beaches, are you going all the way to like Cliff Crest? Like, would you basically say anything along the Kingston like road kind of line? Well, and then you, and then you look at Kingston road. So if you look at Queen street right now on the beaches, there's a massive premium. If you're South of Queen, closer to the water, right? It's like yep. a 200,000, $300,000 premium on these houses. If I look at Kingston road as that next way out East, will there continue to be a bigger premium in the homes that are south of, of Kingston, right? So I don't know. This is just my theory, but I would assume if things continue the way they are, if the population growth we see through immigration levels continue and build up, it's like, why is Junction and why are, you know, I guess Ronsi was already kind of there, but it's built up a lot as well. Or why has you know, Riverdale built up? It's because it was closest to the core. Okay, but now all those areas are taken. Well, what's the next closest thing to them that hasn't already been found out? I don't mean found out in terms of people living there, but find mm-hmm. out, found out in terms of pricing, in terms yeah. of being very expensive to live in. So that, that's just my theory about that area. I think long term, it's going to do very, very well. 
That seems to make sense. We had a guest prior. His name, I don't know if you know Sahil Jaggi. He uh, also invests in uh, Toronto and sort of his philosophy was buying bungalows in these up and coming neighborhoods, sub million dollars, holding on to it for five, six years and then having the potential to redevelop it. Some people might just want to sell it if they don't want to redevelop, but that's an also big opportunity as well, especially with the shift and sort of um, the more, I guess, pro-friendly, missing middle regulations that are coming out now. I sort of want to backtrack to your, uh, we're, we're discussing condos a little bit earlier. Obviously, we know the condo market, a little bit of an odd place now. Just want to hear about your crystal ball. Where do you see things going in that space? Because I think we're we're almost at six months of inventory at, at one yeah. point. And do you think that it's still a feasible way for people to jump into condos, buy it, and then trade off into bigger properties? Or is that not as feasible in today's market? Well, the condo market saturated with investors. Like, let's just call it what it is, right? Um, you look at active condo listings in the market in downtown Toronto right now, and 75% of them are either vacant or tenanted. So those are investors trying to sell those assets because of the interest rates. Like it just is what it is. Yeah. Now, long-term, I'm not betting against Toronto condos for one simple reason. They are still the most affordable asset people can buy. Simply that. Now, I don't think people come to Toronto and have this dream of owning a condo one day. I think they come here and go, well, this is what I can afford. So it's either I buy this to stay in the city to get into the market or I leave Toronto, you know, go to Kitchener, go to wherever, go to Guelph and buy a house for the same price or or less. Right. But I think there's going to be a big shakeup in the condo market in the next little bit. And in the gap right now between resale condos and pre-construction is like 40 percent premium. Yeah, I've been openly against pre-construction for the last four years, really talk. And like lots of people disagree with me and that's totally fine. I just couldn't make sense of the, the, the price gap. So I think where is there going to be pain in the condo market? We're already seeing it right now with the stuff that's closing with the assignments and the appraisals not coming in and things like that. But if I look at, at the resale market, condo prices in Toronto for resale are kind of like back to end of 2019 prices. Yeah. Because they've got up and down and up and down. And for the first time this year, I've sold a lot of condos for people where they walked away not even breaking even, are right? These assignments or like these are actually no, like- No, resale. They, they bought it in early 2020. They're selling it wow. mid end 2023. And, okay. uh, you know, with fees and land transfer tax and everything, they're like, they're walking away with what they put into it. Mm-hmm. So what's the reason that they're selling it? It's, it's mostly a lifestyle decision. I had a lot of people like moving to BC or they, they you know, they got pregnant, they had a kid, something right. happened. So that's kind of what's going on these days. And then on the other side of things, there's the investor, people that are selling. Yeah. And, and I'm actually trying to talk most investors that call me out of selling right now, because mm-hmm. I personally believe that the prices, not saying that this is the bottom of prices, but the prices are fairly low and the interest rates are very high. And I think mm-hmm. in the next two years, the interest rates will come down and the prices will move up slowly, not, not by much, but they will move up. So. I don't think right now is a good time to sell as an investor if you can afford to hold it. But there will be pain in the new construction side of things with those closings happening. It's just going to happen. And we're still getting condo listings sold very quickly. It's just, you have to be priced accordingly because you're competing with a lot more people. You remember the condo bust of like COVID, like when everyone was like out of like Toronto, I guess it's a Toronto condo list, but are we lower than that in terms of price right now? No, we're significantly higher than that. that that's okay. when it really dropped down. But, but again, like 2019 was also way higher than 2020. So yeah, like true. it sounds, 
it sounds like, oh, that's really bad. It's back to 2019. It's like, yeah, but that was better than a few of the other years after, right? Gotcha. But what's interesting, we're not as low in terms of average sale price. I've never seen this much inventory ever Mm -hmm. in 10 Mm -hmm. years. Yeah. Yeah, it looks like the months of inventory is climbing up, but it's sort of more, there's more terminated listings now. I imagine there's a lot of people waiting off until the spring, so possibly. But just to put things in perspective, you were mentioning about, uh, we're talking a little bit about the assignment market. So the condo that I'm living in right now, I bought that pre-construction a while, a while back. There was actually, I don't want to tell the name of the building, but sure. they close in phases, right? The first three, yep. not occupancy, but actually goes direct to close. So people probably can guess who it is in the developer. And then the next three floors direct to close. 20% of the people did not close on the condo for the first three or four floors. Yeah, we got that through gossiping with one of the workers. Uh, wow. That. We gave them some treats and they told us that. I'm like, that is a very big percentage. And the people who live in the seventh, eighth, ninth floor who paid a premium, a floor premium, I would imagine that percentage of not closing to be even higher because these are the cheapest floors. So what's so what's happening there? Are they just losing their deposits and walking away? No, or no. What's, so so what's what's going on? It's a $500 penalty every day that they don't close, no one has signed a mutual release. And I don't think that they're going to, they're going to sign one, obviously, because they, they paid a premium on the price. So I don't know, I guess they're just accumulating the cost until they can close or until they get sued, but it's ridiculous. That's it. I've never actually heard those numbers from anybody. So that's really interesting. I mean, it's not surprising. They bought it four or five years ago at an interest rate of thinking it was going to be like two to 3% when they close. And now it's six. That changes uh-huh. things. And the fact that whatever they paid for it, I would argue probably it's probably not worth that today. Not what it's worth. Exactly. No. Exactly. Now, let me ask you about the freehold market, actually. What's happening in the freehold market? Is it, uh, is it a little bit more busier than condos? Um, yeah. Do you expect price recovery in the next year with the freehold market? And I'll let you know sort of my thought. I didn't think prices were going to recover this year, but they did. Very surprising, eh? It was very surprising. Yeah. Fixed rates being, uh, being with the four, the Bank of Canada signaling they weren't going to hike rates anymore. And then a bunch of people jump back into the market. It seems like we are literally doing deja vu going into 2024. Like exact same things are happening. Like the fixed rates have dropped still higher than before, but people are more confident than ever that rates have stayed the same. And anecdotally, we're like I was on Instagram stories. There was a realtor in Belleville who said that December right now, anecdotally, has been a bit busier than usual. So I want to hear what you think is going to happen in the freehold market to the next year. Sure. So I guess so before I answer that, let's just think about this on like a, you know, looking the bird's eye view of the market. Right. So I, I totally agree with you. It's very interesting. I actually went back and listened to a few of the podcasts that we did at the end of last year. And it was like doom and gloom, like how 2023 is going to start. And it shocked everybody. Like January was quiet. But then once Bank of Canada said conditional pause, everyone's like, okay, now I can go do something. And I think they learned their lesson by being somewhat positive in the way that they were speaking to the consumers. Even now with the hold in December, they're not coming out and saying we're done. They're never going to say that anymore because they've learned their lesson. So why did prices go up at the beginning in the first half of 2023. One reason, there was no inventory. There was nothing to choose from. Mm -hmm. Rates were high, but there was still enough people that could afford them that, that you saw price growth. Now, moving into next year, if rates remain high, but we have inventory, 
you know, you'd expect to see a flat line kind of across the board or dips in, in certain property types. Now, going back to freehold, the answer for freehold for inventory, the, the inventory for freehold is still about half what it is for condos. So I think it's like we've been in this mindset for the past decade where sellers in Toronto, frankly, have been spoiled. My job used to be, hey, I got 10 offers for you. Which one do you want? Right now it's, hey, we've been on the market for 30 days. Only 14% of the active listings are actually finding buyers. We're going to have to make an adjustment. Like it, it's, it's totally changed the conversations that we're having. But the inventory level for the freehold properties is in a balanced market right now. But we went from an extreme seller's market to a balanced market. So, so people think, oh my God, the market sucks now. It's like, well, no, we were just so spoiled for so long that the market's kind of reasonable now. And you put it into perspective, like we talked to people from Edmonton, from Red Deer, and they're like, you have three and a half months of detached inventory. Like we have 14. <laughs> and like, so, so you kind of put yeah. it into perspective. So, I mean, I think the answer is it depends on the neighborhood. It depends on on the pocket of the city that you're looking at. But freehold properties, I actually think will still continue to do well because it's just, it's land. You're, you're buying land. And uh, personally, I started my investment journey just focusing on condos and I've moved all of my properties except one into freehold because I think long-term, I want to own as much dirt as possible. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think part of the argument with, with freehold is essentially that you've got multiple exits, one being like a developer, right? Versus like you have the same exits that a condo has plus like this other opportunity, right? So I'm curious because I'm sure you work, like we've talked a lot about sellers, but I'm sure you work with a lot of buyers as well in today's market or your team does as well, right? Where are you guys seeing the most opportunity? Is it in distressed condo sales? Is it in detached properties because you can generate so much more in rental income? Is it in whatever you like? Yeah, where are you guys just seeing the most opportunity for buyers today? Yeah, simple answer is is condo market in terms of as being strategic. So what most buyers will do is they'll they'll meet with their realtor, they're, they're, they'll get their search going, and then they get into some type of daily property search. And but what they forget is that daily property search is only showing you the new properties that came to the market that day. And every buyer falls in love with the properties that are marketed the best. They have the best photos. They have the best staging. They also sell for more money. <laughs> So our strategy is going like, okay, right now, if you guys were new buyers with us, we'd create a map and we do a reverse search and we talk about what you want. And then we'd figure, okay, well, what's actually sold in the last 30 days? And did you like any of it in the price point that you're looking to buy in? And then we would go more strategic. We'd go like, okay, we know 15% of active condo listings are finding buyers every single month. Let's t- look at how long it took those, even those 15% to find a buyer. So I think right now it's about 27 days is like the active downtown days on market, but it only matters for properties that sold. Okay, so let's create a secondary list where we start at 27 days on market to infinity. Let's pull those properties, let's sift through them and let's find the ones with the shittiest photos that are tenanted, that don't look good, that are overpriced and let's put our top five together. And then let's go bargain hunting over there because there are diamonds in the rough like if they do a bad job marketing it, you shouldn't feel bad as a buyer that you're going to get it for a lower price. It's been flipped the other direction for a decade. Like use this to your advantage. So we've also, I, I had done this because I, I had made a YouTube video showing people like, you know, owner occupied properties versus vacant versus tenanted properties. And I pulled a sample size of 150 owner occupied versus tenanted. And I found that the tenanted properties sold for 3% less. However, 
you are taking on risk buying a tenanted property. You have to understand how it works. If you're buying it as an investor, you have to assume the tenant, right? So right. there's, there's all these different things, but if you're looking at a pure purchase price, that's where the opportunity is. And then on the vacant properties, the argument could even be made kind of more that like, oh, these are people that not only do they need to sell, but they don't even have a tenant there paying 80% of their carrying costs every month. They're just taking a hit. So those are the ones that you can find a deal in this market, but you're going to have to make five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 offers and just throw things at the wall and see what sticks and be patient with it. It is a bit interesting for the owner occupied stuff. That's a lot of sellers are actually holding their ground. They're, they're being stubborn. We haven't seen the price drops we thought we were going to see, but in the tenanted side of things, in the vacant side of things, that's where all opportunities present themselves. And so when you look at like the field markets, I think a lot of our, a lot of our audience, I suspect is, is going to be more in love with the field side mm-hmm. or yep. the future fourplexes and garden suites and what that can all, and plus I've talked about them just as well here, right? So, uh, you know, on the freehold side, I know you said it's a balanced market. Is it kind of the same principles that you guys are applying? Like go for the tenanted ones, go for the more distressed ones, the ones that need renovations and so on? Yeah, I think when you see a property with no photos or one photo on it, that's like, go see it, go see what's going on there. Now, it is also a market right now with the cost of borrowing anything. It's extremely high that you're finding that the properties that aren't moving ready are really selling right? Unless they're priced so competitively that someone's willing to take on the risk. If you're willing to take on that risk, then there is huge opportunities right now. Yeah. And if you're waiting, because that's the question too, it's like, well, whether it's an investment, whether you're buying for yourself, okay, well, I want to wait till there's more stabilization in the market. I want to wait till rates come down before I get in. I want to wait. I want to, everyone's waiting for this perfect time. Just ask yourself, well, what is it exactly that you're waiting for? Be very clear on what that outcome is because most people are waiting and I ask them, they're like, I don't know. I'm just waiting until it gets better. I'm like, well, what does better mean to you? Yeah. Waiting until FOMO. <laughs> we are waiting until all the other people want it and then the price goes up. Yeah. So like yeah. buy it. Don't buy anything, period. If you're not going to hold it for five years, <laughs> don't do it. And if you're an investor listening to this podcast, I would have a 20 year outlook on anything I'm buying, right? Because <laughs> there's so much noise right now about what's going on. And there's so many scary news headlines and I understand all of it. And, and there is going to be pain in this market. Like, let's be clear. But if you get caught up on all that and don't think about where this is going in the future, we're not building at the rate that we need to. Our immigration levels are very, very high. Interest rates will go down. The Bank of Canada has made it very clear. They want to get the overnight rate between two and three. It's at five. It will go down at some point. But mm-hmm. you got to think long term. If you're thinking today, it's a very scary market to put your money into. <laughs> yeah. And I think going back to something that we touched on touched on earlier was just kind of similarity of this and this time last year. Right. And, and I think the key differences are like, we've actually got inflation down to basically under control. Right. Obviously there's a couple of key variables with oil and gas and world politics and stuff like that. Right. But you know, we've got inflation under control. We've got flat GDP. We've got unemployment picking up, which is bad, but um, you know, all, all kind of indicators that would support at least holding rates or maybe probably doing cuts next year. And we've got a massive amount of mortgages coming up for renewal the next 48 months or so. Right. So um, I, I think all of which will help the market. The problem is I think with rates kind of stabilized or even coming down, I, I think the reality is people just don't have, like they've eroded savings over the last 12 to 18 months. And as a result, people have less and less capital. Like I'm feeling it myself, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of other people are feeling it. You have less and less capital. Your businesses are not producing nearly as well as they were 
12 months ago or 18 months ago, some business owners who are a significant portion of investors are kind of decreasing the capital available. So then you go to those properties that need a lot of work and need like cash for teeth with tenants and stuff like that. And it's like, shit, like I don't even have like the capital to pay the down payment, let alone now for this renovation and to get this tenant out and do this and that and hold it for six months while we go through that process, right? So I think, yeah, like the biggest opportunities are in investment properties that no one else wants to touch, but there's a reason that no one else wants to touch it as well. Right. So if you're uniquely, I guess, positioned with like plenty of qualifying capacity and like capital that you've been like socking away and like, or you have like a decent risk tolerance, I think it's a great, uh, great market for it. So yeah, no, I appreciate your insights in the Toronto mar- market, Tom. I think, um, you know, cognizant of that's not all you do. Like the realtor side is definitely a big part of your business. And I think there's a lot of opportunity for anyone that wants to work with you guys. You clearly know both downtown and, and the kind of moving into Scarborough and the Kingston side very well, it sounds like. That being said, I'd be curious to kind of learn about your education side of, of your business as well, right? So the YouTube and because um, we also have a lot of realtors that will listen to this podcast. We have a lot of people in the in active businesses in real estate. I'm curious, like, how did you go about getting started in YouTube? getting started with the podcast, all that stuff, growing it. Like what was that journey like for you? So I think anyone that runs any type of business can relate to this. I started real estate when I was 22 years old, lived in my parents' basement at the time. And uh, I made $10,000 in my first six months of selling real estate. And I remember sitting there one day and being like, this isn't going to work. <laughs> like this, this isn't going to work. And I felt like I was learning as much as I could. Like I was newer then, you know, I'm 32. So it's been a decade. But I was like, what's the difference between me and people doing all these business? Like, wh- what's the actual difference? It was so frustrating to me because I was like, I know what I'm talking about. I provide a good client experience. And the clients that I do work with, they refer me all their friends and family. Now, looking back, I realized I was on chapter one and it doesn't happen right away. But I came to this realization that it doesn't matter how good you are at what you do if nobody knows. Sounds simple, right? So it's like, how am I going to get people to know who I am? I didn't have money to send direct mail flyers. I couldn't do billboard. I didn't have any of that kind of money. What I did have is an ability at some level to talk to a camera. And so what I did, this was going back. So I got my license in February, 2014, but it took till the end of 2015 for me to actually go, okay, I'm going to do this. And so I made something called the story report, which was a two and a half to three minute video. There's still old ones. If you go back on my YouTube channel to the beginning of me sitting there and being like having my papers in front of me and just saying the average sale price was 400. It's funny, actually, how it's changed over a period of time. You should do it this year. Yeah, I know. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah, and, and I, and I just put those out every single month and I was only posting them on YouTube so that they would show up on my website. YouTube was just <laughs> a place to hold my video. And then I would send it to my, my database every month and I would put it on, you know, at the time I would put it on Facebook. I'm not doing that anymore. It's all kind of centralized to YouTube. And it started working. People started reaching out to me and be like, Hey, like I watched your videos. That was great. We're thinking about buying a property this year. Could we sit down and have a conversation? I'm like, you weren't even on my list of people I sent this to. (laughs) So what I realized that everybody is silently watching just with this podcast. And what we've learned from ours is that People that enjoy what you do typically enjoy it and then move on with their day. People that don't like what you do typically tell you they don't like what you do, right? Uh, They're very vocal. They're the loudest people in the room. Now, that's when I realized like, okay, there's an opportunity here. And there's different types of ways that you can grow a YouTube channel. And I'll get to the podcast in a second. But it was really when the pandemic hit. I was like, okay, I'm just going to go all in on this. I'm just going to make two videos a week. 
I'm going to think of different topics. The videos kind of fall into four categories. They're headline debunking videos. They're super educational videos. They're list videos or they're comprehensive guide videos, right? That's pretty much what my YouTube channel is. And the headline videos get people to show up, get people to comment, get people to like, but it doesn't get people to book appointments with you as a business owner. Yeah, but yeah. the 45-minute video I have on how to buy a condo in Toronto, that gets me tons of appointments because people will yeah. watch the entire thing. So that's, that's how it started. And then we just had one simple change where we had a, a link in the description for people to book a time with me. And I would just acknowledge it at the beginning of the video. And, you know, we'll do... I don't know. We did over a hundred appointments this year from our YouTube channel, which turned into 30 sales. Wow. So it's, um, I don't have the biggest following, but it's niche and it works. And it's like, whoa, okay. <laughs> As a business owner, even if I'm not feeling it today to make a video, this is my prospecting. This is yeah, what right. I need to do to stay in touch with people. So what the YouTube team look like? What's that entire like business side of, of your life? Look like? Is it just you and like an editor? You're looking at it. You're looking at it. It's just me. Really? I, uh, I don't even have an editor. I edit my own videos, but I've got it down to a science. So it's like the way a video would look now. Like, so, so let's say I would, I would look over the Trev numbers for December and, and I'd pick one specific thing out of it. That would be the title of that video. Right. Then I would think, okay, what, what's a title someone's going to click on and what's a thumbnail someone's going to click on. So I would visualize that. Then I'd sit down in front of my camera. I, I'm not in the studio today, but I have a studio in my house in my basement that we built out. And it's one button record. Everything's all connected. It records to my computer, not to a memory card. And I do not stop recording. If I make a mistake, I just keep talking. <laughs> like a 15 minute file. I'll pull into Final Cut Pro. I'll cut out all the ums and ahs and the screw ups. And I have an eight minute video. And then I'll add in a few tweaks. And that's it. Nice. I can edit a video in you know 20 minutes now just because I've done it for 10 years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. interesting and is youtube so that seems like that's the main platform for you but you expanded outside of that i think for a lot of people it's difficult especially for myself to convince myself to do youtube because i always think it's a big time commitment versus doing just a quick you know one minute shorts and quick reels. i believe that consumers go to instagram and tiktok to be entertained okay. it is a scroll move on with your life you might not even follow someone on TikTok, but you see all their videos because the For You page gives it to you because you watch their videos so it knows that and then it gives you more of them, right? Yeah. And even if you go back to the early days of TikTok, all the kids that blew up on TikTok from dancing, what are they all doing now? They all have podcasts on YouTube. Why, like, why did they go over? Because I think <laughs> those platforms are great for entertainment and for fun stuff and for viral clips. Like I get it. It, it feeds the ego massively when something takes off on those platforms. But I think then people go to YouTube and to actually learn. Yeah. Yeah. No, I don't disagree with you. I've been going hard on the shorts because it's where you get the attention. And you got to think about like sort of the lead funnel, right? YouTube, yep. no, if no one knows you, very little chance someone's going to click to watch a 45 minute video, right? Fair, fair. So you have to sort of create that lead funnel. How do I get all this attention? And of these people who watched it, who wants to continue down that journey with me until you get the people who become super fans, you could say, who watch all your content, right? But that's a, that's a very interesting point that you mentioned there. That being said, like, what else are you sort of doing with your social media business? It sounds like when you started off, it was a little bit just see what happens with it. Yeah. But now there's much more intention behind it. So could you walk us through sort of your social media planning? Yeah. So, I mean, YouTube is, is my 
outlet to talk to consumers, to talk to buyers and sellers in my market. That's, that's what YouTube is. Instagram, which is actually our biggest following on any platform, but because I speak at real estate conferences, because I do trainings for realtors, I would say 85 to 90% of people that follow me on Instagram are the real estate industry. So I am not actually putting videos on there for consumers. I'm putting things on there because I understand who my audience is. And we do a lot of, of realtor to realtor business. So like we're the go-to team in Toronto for people that have a client from Calgary. And so I get a lot of B2B business from Instagram and then YouTube is the consumer stuff. So that's kind of how I look at it now. And I don't post on TikTok. I don't post on LinkedIn. I don't post on any of these other things. I got off Twitter. My life's been way better just since I got <laughs> off Twitter. I'm a more positive guy. It's YouTube and Instagram. and That's all I care about. And then on top of all that, what we have started to do is give away things for free, whether that is a, you know, ultimate condo buyer ebook or whatever, and accumulating mm-hmm. emails for something of value because long-term the goal is email list. <laughs> you know, my YouTube could be shut down tomorrow. My Instagram could disappear. But if I have an email list, my business is, is pretty set. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And with that email list, you're regularly engaging with them. You put them through sort of a drip campaign. Mayu and I have not done that. <laughs> we should really get like, on that. The one 2023 goal that I failed was to start a newsletter. And I'm like, every month, I'm like, this is the month. I'm going to fucking do this thing. And uh, every month, I'm just, just never get around to it. Well, what we've been doing with ours is pretty simple. We actually just create like little templates in Canva. So our newsletter is like three JPEGs, but you don't know it looking at it, right? I mean, and our newsletter actually goes out every Sunday. It's a weekly newsletter. And it'll have the new podcast a video that I did, our active listings, you know, something that's interesting. And mm-hmm. the click-through rate has gone crazy on that because it's just taking them to the things we've already made. So that's what we've been doing with our newsletter and that's been working pretty well. I know that you and Emma, correct me if I'm wrong, have uh, like a seminar on teaching newer realtors on how to generate leads and leveraging social media. Where do you find a lot of sort of newer people in the industry or even experienced people in the industry go wrong with using social media? Because everyone's on it for the most yeah. part, but a lot of people may not be producing the right content or maybe they're too aggressive in their ass. Like what, what are common sort of mistakes you see? I mean, the first one would be the fact that most people post and don't interact with anybody else. They think I post something, people like my things, people reach out to me. It's social media. You should be interacting with other people, right? You should be talking to them, liking their posts. Like, I I think that's the first thing. The second thing is that views and comments don't lead to business growth. They lead to ego growth. So most people, if they find something that's working, they will do more of it. Even if it's not producing business for them, because it's like, oh my God, this thing off 500 likes, I'm going to do more of that. But it's going down a path of making you feel good and having the dopamine go off, but not building out your business. So that, that would be the second thing. And, and then the third one, which is um, pretty clear with everything is that they, they give up too fast. They're yeah. three months into it and then they stop posting because they didn't get any results. The only thing I think that I have over other people is I'm consistent. I post yeah. two YouTube videos every single week. We have a podcast come out every single Sunday. We have advertisers now for the podcast. They're like, well, what if an episode doesn't come out? I'm like, an episode never doesn't come out. If it's in my calendar, I'm doing it. Like it's happening. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think the consistency is the big thing. And you have to ask yourself, like, are you making content that people actually care about? Is it actually helping someone walk away and go, I learned something new from that? 
or are you just making something that's going to get you a lot of clicks and views and then they move on with their day? <laughs> and another sort of question on the social media topic. Um, so content, you're very content heavy. You're very focused on adding value. There's sort of this other side in social media that honestly, I haven't paid too much attention to until recently as well. And that is sort of like algorithm and understanding what does better than others, right? So I've been doing a little bit of research myself because I've, I've been throwing out a lot of content, but haven't been giving much thought into captions, keywords, so on and so forth. Is that something that you focus on or are you all about just deliver with value and what happens, happens with it? Or do you also put an emphasis on that? Yeah. So that goes back to what we were talking about before, right? Like it doesn't matter how good your video is if nobody clicks on it. Yeah. Right. So that's kind of like the first thing you have to think about is I, I'm not super into like keywords and stuff. I don't pay much attention to that. There's really just two things. What is the title of the video? And if you can't think of a title, ChatGPT will think of 10 for you, right? or you can run it through. If a video is not performing in the first hour, I'll go in and change my titles all the time because you, you just got to get people to click on it. Now, yeah. now we're not, I'm not talking about like insane clickbait on every video, but that's the first thing. And then the second thing is the thumbnail. It has to be a very clean, clear, you as the person in the video, I think should be half the thumbnail. I think the mistake most people make is they put a little picture of themselves. It's like in the corner, it has to be like half the thumbnail. And then the other side of something, I'll have to say like one word about what your video is about, like keep Neat. it super simple. Uh, Cause if you don't do that, regardless of the content there, no one's going to watch it. So I, I would actually argue that like 80% of it is probably thumbnail and title. 20% is content, uh, but they're never going to learn about the content if they don't click on it. So funny you mentioned that Mr. Beast, I'm sure our audience should know who he is, biggest YouTuber out there and or maybe second biggest. He spends $170,000. I don't know like, if this is verified or not. I heard it on a podcast, but mm -hmm. he spends about an average of $170,000 on his thumbnail alone for testing to see whether it performs or not. And he has a lot of money for sure. Not saying everyone go out and spend $170,000, but that just goes to show how important it is because that guy's a freak when it comes to understanding everything about social media. Again, like something that I'm trying to get more familiar with because people give up too quickly. They might spend all this time on content, but again, you need to give a reason for someone to click on the video. And that a lot is going to be thumbnail, your keywords, your captions, whatever the case is, right? Otherwise people are just going to skip over it. So good, good points you mentioned there. And here's the thing. If, if you're running any type of business and you're putting out really good information, but you could argue it's fairly boring. It's, it's specific to what's, if that person's trying to do that thing. People will not get to those videos unless you make other videos that make them show up. So like when BlogTO puts out an article saying no one is buying Toronto condos, of course I'm going to do a response video on that because a million people are going to click on it. Well, not a million, but tens of thousands. I just need you to get there to see that to then be recommended my next video that's actually full of value, right? But I needed to get you in there in some way. So that's what those videos do. And then, and then the rest of it is just pure education. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I think there's multiple, multiple approaches to this, right? I think some people view social media as like a standalone business because we had the property officer guys for the last few guests as well on the podcast, depending on when this one comes out. But, and you know, their perspective is that like every business should be monetized and every, every single one should be like profitable to its own kind of status, right? Which with YouTube is, it's a little bit tough, right? Because yes, there's monetization and yes, there's click rates and like stuff like that. And, and you, you get your, your paid per views and stuff like that, right? But 
to really grow that and then kind of scale that out, it does have to be treated as a business, but as a realtor, you've got this other active business that you can kind of like us with like the podcast and all the social media stuff we do, like rise is very much a loss leader. Like, you know, it, it just kind of, we funnel money into and so on, but then we make money on our mortgage business. So we, yeah, we make more money on the offset as well. Also business and stuff like that as well. Right. But, you know, I, I think there's multiple, multiple approaches to this stuff. So I, I know you kind of outlined some of the main mistakes um, that, that realtors are making with social media. Where do you think the opportunity is in social media today for like people that are just getting started? Long form. Long form? Wow. That's yeah. kind of the opposite of what a lot of people are saying today. <laughs> yeah, because everybody's doing short form. It's a crowded yeah, place. It's getting crowded, right? Yeah, I know. I'm Long form. Gary Vee's talking a lot about LinkedIn. Have you ever thought of that? I have seen those videos and I think yeah. about it and then do nothing about it. But I... I don't disagree. It's, you can't really disagree with him. He's right on most of the stuff. That is something that we should probably do more of, but no, long form. Videos uh-huh. that help people actually figure something out. If someone's going to watch you talk about something that you're an expert in to 45 minutes to an hour, there's a good chance that unless their cousin is also in that business, they're probably going to call you. Uh-huh. You know, like they really are. And, and I have lots of friends who I think do an amazing job with short form stuff. And I have like half a million followers on TikTok that don't get anyone reaching out because of it. Interesting. So long form people between the videos and the hour of us on the podcast every week, I get a ton of business from that. And it's, and the podcast is the best. I mean, you guys know this. It's like, yes, you prepare for it, but it's a free flowing conversation. Anything can happen. My videos are like, okay, what am I going to talk about? What am I going to say here? What's this going to happen? These are just conversations. And I think people like listening to other people interact. And you can take this long form content a lot of times and chop it up into other short form content. So there's a, there's an AI tool. I think it's, um, it's called Opus. I love it. Okay. So you're familiar with this. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. You put in your content in there, your long form content, and it ranks from zero to a hundred and how potentially viral it could go. Then there's a paragraph beside stating what could improve in making it more viral, why it's going to go viral, et cetera, et cetera. So there are these AI tools that you just film long content and you can chop it up into 10 or 15 short form content anyways. And there's another thing Gary Vee mentioned um, where you, you transcribe these like podcasts or like, let's say one of your YouTube videos, you throw it on ChatGPT and you say, this is a transcription, turn it into a news article or turn it into a LinkedIn article. There you go. A quick way for you to go on LinkedIn and ChatGPT takes everything you say, makes it professional. You paste that on LinkedIn. So you literally didn't have to do any sort of work. You did that long form content and you move it to different mediums, right? There's the more you understand technology and how powerful of a tool it is, the more you can leverage all of these different sort of social media platforms. It's Opus is great. I find it does like 80% of the job. Sometimes it's not perfect, but it it gets most of it done. And yeah, long form just gives you all these different opportunities because everyone's doing short form. I think there's going to be a switch. So what, whatever the business is that you're in listening to this, I think a lot of the listeners may be in the real estate space in some capacity, but regardless of what you do, you put out one video a week going over one thing about how you can help people do something for free or like, you know, awesome. Maybe for you, it's like how to do wholesaling by yourself without the help of anybody else. You don't even need me. Here's exactly how I would do it. And you're just building trust with them over time that even if they don't need you at a certain point, they're like, that's the guy I got to call. Yeah. That's the content I think people are interested in. That's actually going to create business growth. The yeah. rest is all vanity metrics. Yeah. Yeah. 
Awesome. No, Tom, I think we, uh, we covered a lot of great topics for this one. I think, um, the opportunities in Toronto is, is makes sense. Um, I think, you know, hopefully a lot of people take action on it. Um, obviously people have their own limitations. So I guess right now in the podcast, we want to ask you two questions. The first is for someone that's looking to get started in today's market. We actually never thought about this. So it's a good question, but what's the biggest risk that you can see or biggest piece of advice, risk or advice, whichever one you want to share. Yeah. So for investment, writing down on a piece of paper, what your what the outcome is that you're looking for with this investment and what you would consider to be success. And then having a time horizon and putting a very conservative appreciation, maybe 3% a year, 2.5% a year. At Toronto over 40 years has been 6.5%, that, but that's probably not going to be what the next decade is. So, you know, 3% a year. Okay. What's the rents going to be? But have that 10, 20 year breakdown. And the main difference I've been looking at now, I used to be buy, leverage, buy more, buy more, buy more, buy more. And now I'm just getting to the point that like, I don't even care what the equity paid down is so far. I don't care what it means to my net worth. I just want to get all these properties paid off so that in 20 years, they are all absolutely just cash machines. These things, rents are going to go up and my mortgage is going to go down. That's just the way it works. Unless, unless you've hit a trigger rate and your amortization is 70 years. But but generally, if you're making your principal payments, that's, that's how it's going to work. So thinking of this long term, and I would say the other thing is that what's worked very well for me, but obviously there's, there's risks involved, is I partnered with a few people throughout the years to get into properties I couldn't have done on my own. And if you have very clear on paper trust agreements with each other, it's a great way to move forward if you don't have the means by yourself. Yeah, that's all I advice. I'm looking to do that right now on one of my projects. So the second question for you, Tom, is where do you see your business going in the next two to three years? And you can, you know, I'm sure you've got multiple aspects for your business. So answer this however you want. Yeah. So the way that I look at our real estate team is I would consider us like a, like a pound for pound team, you know, and like UFC fighting, it's like pound for pound. Who's the best fighter. I feel like we could go to any weight class and like, we'd be fine. So I'm not trying to build this massive thing. We got six people now on the team and it's a really tight knit group. So I kind of want to keep it the way, the way that it is. I want to take over more market share in the next two to three years. We were, we've been number two in downtown Toronto sales for the last three years. And like, I want to get to number one. I know exactly who I'm chasing and I want to get there. So, so that's the big thing. But then for me, it's like, okay, I have my real estate sales business, but most of that money goes into my corporation that I try to buy properties with it. Right. Then I have my businesses that I run with Emma and other things going on the side and I sell courses and whatnot. I want to get those businesses to a place that those businesses pay for my lifestyle and everything I do for real estate sales or transaction, whatever goes over here and that's investment money. So that would be, that's probably more like the five-year goal, but yeah, that's, that's where the focus is right now. Nice. Yeah. Don't spend all that money invested in some more assets and, and watch that net worth grow. Exactly. Really appreciate you jumping on, Tom. This was an amazing episode. We touched on everything from social media, your thoughts on the market. If people want to connect with you, they want to follow you on your journey, listen to more of your content. How could they best do so? Uh, YouTube, just type in my name, Tom Story. You'll find me. If you like real estate podcasts like this, we got Tom Story Show every Sunday morning. Uh, that's on YouTube and any other audio platforms. And then Instagram is at the story team. Awesome. All of that will be down in the show notes below. If you guys, as always, enjoy this episode, like, subscribe, share it with a friend, leave a comment, leave us a five-star review. It helps bring amazing guests like Calm Story out. And until next time, everyone, invest smarter and live better. Take care, all.